Welcome to another exciting episode of the Alternative Investment Podcast. Listen in as your hosts, Jimmy Atkinson and Andy Hagens, discuss new opportunities in the alts universe. From direct investments to DSTs, opportunity zones, private equity, and more, we cover it all here on the Alternative Investment Podcast. Welcome to the Alternative Investment Podcast. I'm your host, Jimmy Atkinson. And I'm your co-host, Andy Hagens. On today's episode, we'll be discussing the merits of mobile home park investing. Sam Hales is our guest today. He is founder and CEO of Saratoga Group, an owner and operator of mobile home communities. Sam has over $65 million in assets under management, and he joins us today from Auburn, California, just outside of Sacramento. Sam, welcome to the show. Jimmy and Andy, super glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, glad to have you here, Sam. You're one of our first guests on the Alternative Investment Podcast, so let's get going here. Sam, you've been investing in real estate for over 15 years, but somewhat recently, just in the last few years or so, you turned your attention specifically to mobile home park revitalization and operation. Why the shift? What do you like about this property type? It's a great question, Jimmy, and it's one that I am able to talk to people about a lot. I started out in single-family homes, actually raised a fund from China. We were buying single-family homes around the, the greater Bay Area and did that for a number of years. And what I didn't like about that so much is the whole managing contractors, squeezing contractors, right? I mean, it was like your profit was based on like how well you could dial those expenses when you were doing these turnaround projects. What I found is I really liked operating. So I liked once everything was done and fixed, just making sure we were efficient with how we were running these. And that's actually a hard thing to do in the single family space. So that was maybe one thing real estate sector where my skill as an operator would be more important. And then the other thing is I was really interested in finding an asset class that would do well during a downturn. I mean, it's probably laughable now, but in 2017, when we got into mobile home parks, I felt like real estate was maybe a little overheated. And of course, we just kept blasted right through those prices, right? But I feel even more strongly about that today. I mean, there's just been so much cap rate compression. So what I found is I did the research on mobile home parks. And actually, the way I did this is I was able to get some data on the two large publicly traded REITs that, that specialize in mobile home communities and track how they did during uh, downturns. So they've both been publicly listed now for about 22 years, something like that. So right through the dot-com bust and the Great Recession, and there was a chattel crisis uh, that impacted mobile home communities. And despite all those things, every single quarter, these REITs in the mobile home community space had positive, what they call same store NOI growth, basically meaning every lot in their portfolio was more valuable quarter over quarter, no interruptions. It would slow down in, in a downturn, but other than that, it, it just continued to grow every quarter. So that was very compelling. And that's really what got me digging into it more deeply. Yeah, it's a fairly recession-resistant property type. What about you, Sam? Let's back up from it. I want to get your background. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got started with real estate investing and, and what's your track record been over the course of your career? Yeah. Like you mentioned, I mean, it's been nearly 15 years as a full-time real estate investor. I can't believe that when I look back on it, but there's a lot of uh, things that have happened. I started off probably like most people, just buying a single-family home here or there and fixing it up, 
either flipping it or, or leasing it out. I actually early on developed like a lease option strategy that I would use where people would maybe shut out of the credit markets and couldn't buy a home that they could put some money up on a home with me and, and be able to buy it and a path towards home ownership. So that's always been something that was important to me is providing that. But anyway, so start out in the single family space and then, you know, mentioned raise that money from China and did that for a number of years. And actually, as we were deciding to move on from that, I did a whole bunch of stuff. I mean, land entitlement, some infill development, a little boutique hotel, office building, I mean, a few other things, just dabbling, trying to find, well, what makes sense from a sector perspective? So a lot of different experiences there that I, I feel like have all been pretty beneficial and informative for me in terms of when I found mobile home parks and then we bought our first one, realized that there was some very unique characteristics that I was super excited about. Oh, that's great. So you have a lot of experience with multiple sectors in real estate. So Sam, I mentioned that you and I have known each other for a little bit here. We got to know each other in the opportunity zones industry because you had at least one or two different opportunity zone funds that focused on mobile home community redevelopment. What do you like about opportunity zones and what do you have cooking in opportunity zone land right now? And also why would you say OZ's works so well in this property. Yeah, there's probably a lot to unpack there, Jimmy, but let me kind of tell you how we came across this idea of doing mobile home communities in opportunity zones. So we started off, bought our first mobile home park in 2017, and that was just a few close investors that we had. And then 2018, we, we started launching some mobile home park funds. And it was sometime in, in probably early 2018 that we heard about opportunity zones. And sometimes I'm of the opinion, it's like, it's easy to get distracted, right? I mean, it's like, if you find something like, well, you might want to stick with that and try to stay focused. And so when I heard about opportunity zones from a friend, I was like, well, that's really interesting. I was like, but, but I'm doing mobile home parks. So I need to stay focused on mobile home parks. And I, and I don't even remember exactly what happened, but all of a sudden, like the light switch went on. And I, was, and I realized that, wow, mobile home parks and what we're doing with mobile home parks is exactly what you need to do for an opportunity zone investment. You need to reinvest in the property. You need to, you know, double your bases. These are all things that we we were buying very depressed mobile home parks. And this is exactly what we were already doing. <clears throat> and so we basically our third fund, we decided to buy a couple OZ assets and let people know, hey, you don't have to have OZ money to invest in this, but if you do, well, we're going to meet all the requirements and follow the rules so that you can capture these tax benefits. And we only had a few people in that initial fund that took advantage of that, but it basically blew up for us in a, in a good way, right? So all of a sudden, there really wasn't anybody doing that. And Jimmy, as you know, most opportunity zone projects are developing, maybe it's downtown Portland or, or some urban area typically, and it's a class A apartment development or it's a nice hotel development, which is really, if you're in the development business to make money, you got to basically build nice stuff, right? Whereas for us, when we looked at, first of all, just the political intent of the legislation, people don't realize it was bipartisan and both sides of the aisle were pretty adamant about this needed to be something to help the communities, not kick people out of the communities because they couldn't afford to live there because of all the gentrification, but actually investing in the community and the people that were there. As I tell people 
almost every mobile home park should be in an opportunity zone, right? I mean, these are the people that need help. These communities we're buying, a lot of people have been there 20 years or more, and, and they've lived with abandoned homes and garbage in the streets and potholes and for a long time. And that's just like their way of life. And so it's been awesome to come in and, and just like roll up our sleeves, start fixing these things and seeing the, the reaction from people. So anyway, I, I just feel like mobile home communities and opportunity zones are, are like this perfect blend, perfect marriage. And we're able to meet those requirements and yet have an asset that cash flows when we buy it. And then we're able to, to improve pretty dramatically the cash flow as we go fix them up. Obviously, we're going to raise rents as we do that, but bring in new homes and increase occupancy. So it's been a really good fit. Yeah. And I think it, part of why it works really well with what you're doing is that it's not difficult to achieve substantial improvement on those types of properties. Is that fair to say? That's true. One way to think about it is the improvements you have in place are relatively minimal, right? Because it's water sewer lines, you've got streets, you've got some electrical pedestals and a few other trimming, so to speak. But you know, a lot of times those are in bad shape anyways. So just going in, cleaning up, it, I'm, I'd say half of our communities, we meet our basis just doing that part of the exercise. Um, but then we're bringing in brand new homes, right? So, I mean, we're typically a multiple of the basis by the time we're done, right? So we, we might be three, four times our basis pretty easily within that 30-month period. Right. So just to recap there, one of the provisions of the opportunity zones is that substantial improvement needs to be performed on the properties. That can be hard to achieve with certain property types, but with the mobile home park community, it's much easier hurdle to clear. Hey, I want to bring in Andy now, because I know he has some good questions for you on your economics or maybe just economics of mobile home park investing in general. Andy, Andy, what do you got for Sam today? Yeah, Sam, first, I wanted to ask you about rent collection rates, especially during the past 12 to 18 months, we had this politically charged, infamous CDC eviction moratorium under somewhat dubious legal authority. But while that's being litigated in the courts, I understand that quite a few landlords are hurting. So did you see your rent collection rates go down over the past 12 to 18 months? Or how did that affect your projects overall? Really good question. So let me start with not our data, but just some of the data that we look at and that's out there. And you guys have probably seen some of this. Rent collection rates were the highest for the Class A, and there definitely was a drop-off for B and C. I'm just talking apartments, right, at this point. And there really isn't any industry data for mobile home parks, so a lot of it is just from talking to other operators and that sort of thing. The collection rates that we experienced and that other operators on our space experienced were dramatically higher than C-class apartments, which is really probably the best comparative simply because if somebody can't afford to live in a mobile home park or chooses not to live in a, live in a mobile home park, they're often in a B or probably a C-class apartment. So they're somewhat interchangeable. Anyway, the reason I believe that the mobile home park collection rates have been so much better than, let's say, C-class apartments is that people typically own their own home. So they own their own home and they're paying rent for the lot that's there. If they don't pay their lot rent, they're going to endanger their home ownership. And one reason that I feel pretty confident that's the main driver is we kind of tracked, hey, how are we doing with rent collection when we do own the home? And it's basically like an apartment, right? Because we're just renting out everything versus collection when 
they own their own home and, and we saw a significant difference in our collection rates there. But by the end of the month, we were 90, 94% over the portfolio. I can tell you that's not enough. I mean, in other words, now that the moratoriums are ending and this month alone, we're seeing a huge uptick in collections and things like that. So we really expect to get back to where we're nearly 100% here in the next few months. Yeah, that's a very interesting point that with a, a mobile home project, you're renting to homeowners. They literally have skin in the game. They have equity in the game. And there's that good incentive there to be your partner, to right. be a community partner and pay the rent. I wanted to ask about the economics of a mobile home park. Like when you're looking at a project, what is a typical, first of all, project size? What amount of equity do you seek to raise versus debt? What kind of debt financing you're typically securing? What kind of cap rate that you're looking for? Any kind of IRR goal that you're usually looking for? Just sort of big, broad numbers and parameters that you look for in an appealing project in this space. Yeah, no problem, Andy. So Let's see. You asked about the size, first of all. I'd say our average size is around 100 spaces on, on a mobile home park that we buy. And there's definitely exceptions to that. So we just bought a portfolio last month in Greenville, South Carolina, 170 spaces, but it's like 15 different properties, right? So the, you can imagine, I mean, 20 spaces over here, 12 over there. They're all urban. And that's actually the Greenville, South Carolina market. They don't really have large mobile home communities, but they've got a lot of these kind of infill communities spread around. We love that market and we're super jazzed about how it's doing for us so far. We actually had another portfolio we bought about a year ago there and it's just been done really well. So we've got that all the way up to, I think our biggest community is in Rockford, Illinois, uh, just west of Chicago. And that's about 384 spaces. So that's the range that we play in. As far as a target economics that we're looking for, we're a lot more focused on our per lot basis than any other metric. And there's probably three things that we look at there. We look at occupied lot and how much that costs, a vacant lot, how much that costs, and then a fully improved occupied lot. So I'll put it to you like this. Our portfolio, we have about 5,000 pads. Actually, we'll have 5,000 here at the end of the month. And our average acquisition price is just over $17,000 a pad. And that's occupied or not occupied. One that's occupied with a home and a resident is definitely more valuable than an empty one because it takes money to move a home in and set it up and all that sort of stuff. But anyway, as far as cap rates, our average cap is around 7 to 8% going in. But we care a lot less about that and more about, like I said, our basis in the lot, because we know that over time, if we buy right from a dollar per lot basis, and it's a decent market, we're going to fill every one of those lots. And we know what the market rent's going to be. And we know generally within a pretty narrow range, what our operating expenses are going to be. And so we're in it for the long haul. We're, as I tell people, we're buyers, not sellers. We haven't sold a park yet. We have 75 communities and we haven't sold one yet. So we're targeting, we want to reach a 15% IRR for our investors, and we're looking at our cash flow. And, but really, all those numbers work out if we buy right on a dollar per lot basis. So that, to us, that's the most important metric. That makes total sense. So 
just pick a number out of a hat, like with a X dollar deal size, how much equity would you raise versus debt and, and what kind of, of debt financing would you get? I mean, it sounds like you have a very good track record. These are fairly predictable type investments. So are you able to utilize quite a bit of leverage to increase your returns? Yeah. Leverage is actually the most challenging part of this business from my perspective. I mean, there's a lot of operational challenges and we'll probably talk about those in a little bit, but the financing is hard. So there's probably a bifurcation there. If you have a 90 to hundred percent occupied community and, and it looks real nice and you can get Fannie Mae financing, like that's Fannie Mae with the duty to serve. I mean, it, they love mobile home parks. And in fact, because of what I talked about, how well mobile home parks did during COVID in terms of collections and even rent increases, the Delta, it, it was interesting. There was an inversion. So, so pre-COVID, there was probably 50 basis points spread between a class A, class B, multifamily development, and then a mobile home park. Like you would just, you pay a little bit more from Fannie or Freddie for your financing for the mobile home park. We came out of COVID. Well, you could say we aren't out of COVID, but anyway, after about 12 months after COVID, that had switched and it was now basically the reverse. I mean, you can get financing on a nice stabilized mobile home community, definitely below rates you would get for a, a class A or class B apartment complex, similar quality and similar location. The challenging part is what we buy, right? Because we're buying a community that's maybe 60% occupied on average. Uh, when the bank, when you send them photos or when they drive through, they're like, oh boy, <laughs> like I, I know would live here, right? So, and to us, that's the opportunity. That's why we're doing what we're doing, but it's definitely a little more challenging. So we have a lot of, I call them regional banks that we work with. We're typically getting 70% LTV and we're in the four and a half to as much as 5% on the interest rate, it's not terrible. But what happens is our portfolio is significantly under leveraged. And I'm talking just debt to equity. I'm not talking about value. That would be a, a whole different thing. But if we just look at how much debt we have versus how much equity, it's about 50-50. So we're making a lot of improvements and we're, and then it's like, well, how do you get your equity out, right? How do you, and that's through a refinance. And we're actually looking at a large kind of portfolio wide refinance where, you know, a lot of our stuff isn't quite ready for Fannie or Freddie. So maybe we use a debt fund or, so, or something like that. But the reason I say that it's the, the most challenging thing in this business is the financing is because in order to really move the needle on the profitability of these communities, you need to bring new homes in and new homes are difficult to finance. So there's programs out there. For example, 21st Mortgage has a program where if you have a buyer come in the door and you've got a new home, they can get qualified with 21st, but it's a difficult process. And a lot of people in this space, they just can't qualify for a home. So we're using what I mentioned earlier, like a, a lease option structure where people don't have to go through the same rigor in terms of getting qualified but they're still able to achieve home ownership on a new home in something like 10 years or so. But then the question is, well, okay, but at Saratoga Group, if we're, you know, that, that's fine. We brought the home in and then somebody's kind of buying it on terms from how do we get money for that? We've been fortunate. We've worked really hard with a bank and we just closed on a couple large credit lines to do that. But I can tell you that 
most people in this space are never able to do that. They either don't have the track record or, or maybe not bankable enough to get those lines. And it really holds back the industry. I think you'd see more improvements and more communities getting filled up if there was an easier way for people to get financing on these homes. Absolutely. And that's interesting. There is just this huge housing shortage across the United States. And, and then now with inflation and, and so many input costs being higher, home builders are investing in building more luxury homes. So it's a real pickle. And I, I think Saratoga Group has this great story where you have a very good track record and you're operating in this niche. But I, I really see two different stories, at least two different stories. One, like I'm thinking of an investor that I know who's very high net worth and he loves cash flow. He loves hard assets and, and collateral and actually he's not a huge fan of leverage. So just the idea of, of an asset like this that is cash flowing from day one with an attractive cap rate and that doesn't have an excessive LTV, I think he would love just like the pure cash flow and then investing, uh, reinvesting, and then improving cash flow, and then doing a refi. Like he would love that story. But then there's also this other story or investment thesis about buying these struggling mobile home parks and improving them and investing in these communities. I mean, especially in OZs or areas of the country, which frankly, they not only need housing, they need better housing and they need safe and, and clean and pleasant neighborhoods for people to live in. So I'm just wondering which of those investment theses or stories do you find resonates with a typical accredited or, or high net worth investor? Great question, Andy. I mean, I'd be disingenuous if I didn't say that people are most concerned with an investment on, you know, security of their money and what the uh, projections look like on, on uh, the return, right? The return profile. However, almost every investor that I speak with right after we talk about that wants to make sure that we're being socially responsible with what we're doing i had a conversation yesterday and it, it's like a hundred other kind of conversations i've had with investors where after we've talked for a while they say something like i'm really glad to hear what you're doing with those communities i was afraid that what i was going to learn was that basically you guys buy these communities you jack up the rents and that's how we all make money and they're like, I wouldn't want to participate in something like that. And I really appreciate that because obviously most people that I'm talking with, they have money to invest and that's because they've been successful in their lives and whatever they've done and they, they want to do the right thing. And that's important to us. And so it's actually something we talk about as a company a lot. If you'll indulge me a little bit, I'll share a, an anecdote that we use and we call it the bus test. And it's actually from a little bit from my experience growing up. I, I grew up in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. And I can remember pretty distinctly getting on the middle school bus for the first time as a sixth grader and being petrified, right? Like feeling like, okay, I know I don't like all the big burly eighth graders in the back of the bus. I don't want to sit back there. I'm going to sit up here towards the front and try not to get noticed, try not to get teased, try not to get whatever. I think it's a real vulnerable part of, of a kid's growing up is maybe middle school years and especially getting on the bus. And anyway, I just remember feeling like, I don't want to stick out. I don't want to be different. I don't want to have things that people make fun of me for. And I think we've all had probably similar experiences, especially in that age range. And 
we think about that with our communities and the kids in our communities. So we call it the bus test. Like if kids are getting off the bus in front of our community or getting on the bus and they're embarrassed because there's trash in the streets and there's rundown houses and, and it's obvious that there's crime or like, that's not acceptable. And I can tell you that almost every community we buy is like that when we buy it. And so what we're looking to do is we want to pass the bus test. We want kids to feel proud to live there. They get off and it's like there's other kids riding their bikes on the brand new streets and the homes look nice and it's safe and it's a place that they can be proud to go home to. And what we find is if we're doing that, like if we do all those things, we're actually creating community. We don't even have to advertise. Like as soon as we have a new home ready, there's people lined up wanting to get in. So it's like by doing the right thing, it really economically works out well also. And so that's been definitely the most rewarding part of this business is just seeing that we can really create community and make these places a better places to live. Yeah, I think that's great, Sam. I can tell it's a passion of yours and a passion of Saratoga groups helping to have positive social impact on the communities where you guys are developing. I mean, that's the tagline on your website even is investing in community development is not investing in real estate or investing in mobile home park communities. Uh, It's what you lead with. And I think you're absolutely right. It's not just a feel good story, but there's actually a business case to what you're doing as well. I want to wrap up here in a minute or two, but final couple questions for you, Sam, for someone out there listening right now, who's thinking they want to get started with mobile home park operation. What tips do you have for them? How can they get started? Yeah, we could probably spend a lot of time on that part, right, Jimmy? But here's what I'll say is that when I was looking to get into the space a few years ago, I listened to a lot of podcasts specifically on mobile home park investing. And I don't think this was done intentionally, but the messaging that I got was, hey, this is easy. And it's like, coupon clipping. It's like owning a parking lot. I mean, you know, I'd hear these different adages and I I really didn't know any different. It didn't quite sound right to me, but anyway, I got in the business and, and I got excited about it, despite the fact that it was nothing like that. Right. And we've got communities that are like that now, right. Where we've stabilized them, we filled them up and everybody knows the rules now and it's just, and it's easy. But if you're going to be buying those communities, you're competing against Blackstone and other people that that are going to pay way more money than you should. And I mean, they have just very cheap capital and they're going to pay a three and a half cap or whatever for these stabilized communities. Just know that if you're looking to get into this business, it's a lot of elbow grease and it's a lot of hard work. You know, I'll just give you an example. In our company, we have a team of five project managers. I never would have envisioned that, that we would need that many people, but we we just have so many projects going on and we need to manage all these projects. So it's just a lot of hands-on and and you just need to be prepared for that. But there's still, I believe, a lot of opportunity in this space. Absolutely. Great tip, Sam. Thanks for your insight and uh, thanks for joining us today. Really appreciate you joining as a guest on one of our first episodes here for the Alternative Investment Podcast. Before we go, though, can you tell our listeners where they can go to learn more about you and Saratoga Group? Yeah, absolutely, Jimmy. So we're pretty active on LinkedIn. Sam Hales, H-A-L-E-S. You can find me there on LinkedIn. And then also our website, which is saratogagroup.com. Fantastic, Sam. saratogagroup.com. For our listeners out there today, we will put together some show notes for this episode on the AltsDB website. You can find those show notes at altsdb.com slash podcast. 
and there you'll find links to all of the resources that we discussed today with our guest, Sam Hales. Sam, thanks for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Jimmy and Andy, thank you so much. Appreciate it. That's it for our show today. A huge thank you to you, our listener. If you like this episode, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. The Alternative Investment Podcast is produced by the Alternative Investment Database, online at altsdb.com. You can learn how to subscribe to this podcast and access the show notes by visiting altsdb.com slash podcast. And we'll be back soon with another episode.